Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Being sober-minded is to think clearly, to be level-headed about things. And he says, I want them to be reverent. Um, There's a seriousness about their worship. There's a seriousness about the way they view life. Um, They're not irreverent. They don't make fun of serious things. I guess maybe the idea of reverence there is people who don't make fun of serious things. One of the things that you remember about young people is they make fun of things that they shouldn't. And Paul here is saying, I want you to be reverent, and I want you also to be temperate. That means to be self-controlled, to um, be in charge of your emotions, in charge of, of your, your life, to be disciplined. Sound in faith, um, knowing what you believe and why you believe it, and firm in that. I also want you to be sound in love and in patience. Um, There's nothing worse than a crotchety old man, isn't there? Impatient. And why do you think he has to tell them to be patient? Why do you think he has to tell the older men, I want you to be patient? And why are they impatient with people? Yeah, they know the answer, and they're, you know, part of them, it, it's easy, you know, like as I'm getting older, I look at some of the stupid things younger people do, and I just shake my head and say, you know, I want to go up and say, you know, you idiots, what's wrong with you, you know, don't you have a bra-? But you know what, I mean, you know, when I was their age, I was sort of an idiot too, I guess, you know. And it's easy as you get older, and as you become, you know, wiser through age, it's easy to become impatient with people who have not gotten to where you're at. And Paul is telling the older men, I want you to be patient with the younger folks. I want you to, to exhibit patience because they haven't gotten there yet. Um, when you're impatient, that's, not a, that, that's really not the way to teach people things. Sometimes you've got to let people make the mistake, don't you? So I know it's going to pay for it, but you know what? They're going to have to pick this one up on their own because I can't solve their problem for them. And then he said the older women likewise. So in the same way that the older men are to be this, in the same manner I want women to be certain things. And again, these are not exhaustive lists of things. We already discussed that. They're representative lists of things. They're representative. I want the older men to be reverent in behavior. The same idea. Reverent, reverent. Um, to be serious about the things that are to be serious about. Um, 
there are certain things you don't make fun of. There are certain things you don't, you don't take lightly. And he wants them also not slanders. And we talked about that. And why would slandering be a problem? Well, in those days, most of the women congregated with other women. Because the husbands were out in the fields or whatever it was they were doing. The women were together. They were raising their kids. And that could be a hotbed for gossip and for slander and for all of the stuff. And generally, women have a much greater problem with that than men. Um, you know, when you look at the gossip pages, who writes them, men or women? Women. Generally, that's, that's a general truism. It just is. Because of the way women are wired. They're more relational. They talk more. And Paul is saying, I, I want you to be not a slanderer. And the, the whole point there of a slanderer, be careful about what you say. Um, don't spill the beans. Don't talk about people. Don't speak evil of other people. I think the idea there is, is, is gossip, slander, talking about people, just talking about other people's character and what they're doing. Don't, don't do that. Don't be someone someone can confide in. And, uh, you know, that's a good quality. How many people do you know, and, and off, off the top of your head, how many people do you know that can keep a secret? I mean, absolutely keep a secret. Why is that? Loose lips. And why are there loose lips? Because we're human and there's a tendency in us to make ourselves look good by making other people look bad. Can you keep a secret? Can you keep a secret? And, uh, you know, this is something I've strived for personally in my own life, just to, if somebody tells me something in confidence, and say, I don't want you to tell anybody, I don't tell anybody. You know, um... I've tried to, to um, really discipline myself in that area because I want to be in the spot that if I ask you to keep something secret, you'll, you'll, you won't yak it all over the place. That's, that's part of godliness is knowing how to keep a secret. And Paul is telling these women here, I want you to not be a slander. Keep a secret. Keep a secret. Don't you think, too, that there's temptation sometimes that causes a person to repeat something that they've been told not to? Yeah. Sometimes it's inadvertent. Sometimes it's not conscious. Um, you know, and I think on the other hand, you know, if we tell somebody something that we don't want repeated, tell them that. Don't leave it up to them to decide whether you want it repeated or not. You know, um, learn to be quiet. Learn to to just be a keeper of secrets. You know, and that's a, that's especially important because because in essence, what what what's going to be the activity or the spiritual know, the spiritual um, ministry of older people for the most part? To help the younger. And how do you help the younger? 
by example, but how else do you help them? Showing them. By showing them and by teaching them. And if you teach them, what are you going to find out about them? Right, and you don't go repeating that. Now, one of the things that the older women are going to be commanded to do is to do what? Teach the younger women. And if you're teaching a younger woman, discipling a younger woman, you're going to find out things about her that had better not go anywhere. If you want to be a godly older woman who can help younger women, you've got to learn to keep your mouth shut because she might tell you things that could destroy her marriage, could destroy her family, could destroy her, struggles she might have. You need to keep your mouth shut. Now it goes with men as well, but especially with women. He says, I want them to be not slanders and not given to much wine. Now again, it's not that the women can't drink and the men can. That's not what he's saying, but a woman is not to be given over to alcohol. Or let's, let's put it in modern day terms, all the meds that people take. Now if you take a medication for physical disease, that's fine. But if you take a lot, you know, look at a lot of the people today. They're taking medications they don't need. You know, these Valium and I don't know what, else, what all the other ones are. You name it. Don't be addicted to things. Now, if there's a medical reason to take medication, take it. But don't take medicine just because it makes you feel better and gets you through the day. That's not solving any problem. That's like, you know, having a stiff of alcohol every day, right? You know, 200 years ago, you drink yourself into oblivion. Now you can get a doctor to give you a prescription. But it's the same thing. He's saying, don't be given to that. And teachers of good things. Now, now immediately you say, well, wait a minute, Schaefer. You told us women aren't allowed to teach in the church. No, I didn't say that. Paul did. Okay. <laughs> so let's blame the right person on that one, not me. They are to teach, but who are they to teach? They are to admonish the younger women. Now let me tell you something. That is probably one of the single greatest needs in churches today. Churches today have women who are obsessed with the idea of teaching classes, teaching men, speak, preaching in the church and all that, and they are neglecting the number one responsibility, which is to teach the younger women. And what are they to teach the younger women? What, what are the younger women supposed to learn? Love to love their husbands and their children. Be chaste or discreet. Chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay, the older women are to teach the younger women. Now, think of your church. If there is a younger woman in your... Who's the younger women? Who's a younger woman? Anybody well, in context, how, how would you define a younger woman here? Well, well, look at what it is here. What would a younger woman have? Children. Children, all right. So the younger woman is a woman that has 
children. All right, not grown children, but children. That could be a young one. Yeah. So this young woman is probably in her 20s, her 30s, mm -hmm. maybe in her 40s or her teens, 19. Well, back then they had children, they were 13, 14 right. years old. All right. Today too. Yeah. Um, but they're to teach the younger women. And, and why, why does Paul single out the older women to do that? You know, we could play, what is that, family feud? You know, what is the top four reasons why Paul wants women to teach women? Number one would be what? They can no. Men, come on. Why? Immorality, that's number one. That's the number one answer. See, now all the women in here just over their heads, you know, because you think different, all right? I'm telling you that, that the number one reason, the number one need that older women need to teach younger women is that, temptation. Howard Hendricks came to church and he gave us a seminar, and one of the things he said, he did a study, he said of 200 pastors, I think it was 200 pastors, who fell into immorality, and 172 of them or something like that started by counseling women. That's, that's how the affair started, in the counseling of a woman, and it led to an affair. Now think about that. 80, I'll do the math, 86% of pastors that fell into morality, the start was counseling younger women. A woman comes into your office as a pastor and she, you know, she's got a deadbeat husband and she's emotionally distraught and she's starved for affection. That's bad news. The temptation is just too great. The church needs older women to teach younger women because the men can't do it. You say, well, the men aren't godly then. Godliness has nothing to do with it. All right? That's, that's not the issue here. The issue is protection, keeping yourself from temptation. That just makes good sense. And by the way, you also need to understand, there are women out there now who are predators, who come into church. Yeah. A lady in my Sunday school class whose father was a pastor relates the time that her father was called over to this house because there was some problem there. And he was not dumb. He took somebody with him. And when the woman answered the door, she was dressed in this very provocative nightgown. Now think about it. What was she after? Yeah. And he was bright enough to have somebody come along. I remember listening to John MacArthur talk about how many times he's been solicited. You know, a woman comes into the church and solicits him. You know, after the sermon, she comes up and shakes his hand and gives him her phone number. You know, things like that. Look, folks, you got to understand, you know, get your head out of the clouds. It's bad news out there. And Paul has given some prescriptions here that are to protect the church. 
protect the church. Older women are to teach younger women. Now, again, they also know what the younger women are going through. They can relate to their issues. They can relate to their problems. And they are not in danger of perform, uh, forming emotional bonds that will lead to immorality. It just makes good sense. And what are they to teach them? Well, they teach them to love their husbands. Now, you know, Gloria Steinem just had a heart attack here. National Organization for Women. I don't know. If she, I'd hate to be the guy that married her. I'll tell you that right now. Forget it. You know, there ain't nothing worth that. Um, but they're to love their husbands. They're to love their husbands. And uh, one of the problems we have today is women. You know, we, we live in a society where stuff is pumped at you so quickly and so fast, it's hard to, sometimes for women to just really love their husbands, because there's always somebody better looking and better, right? Now look, I'm not stupid. There's always somebody that looks better than my wife. There always, there is. There's always somebody that looks better than your husband. I mean, that's, if, it's, if that's all you're after, there's somebody that's better, that has more money, that, that has a better personality, there's always somebody better. In the world sense. God is saying that you're to teach your younger women to love their husbands. Now, how do you teach the younger women to love your husbands? Yeah, you better love your husband. If you're a crotchety old biddy, you know, nagging your husband 24 by 7, you're not going to be able to teach the younger women anything, right? Because the first thing the younger woman is going to do is she's going to look at your Learn life. And here's the thing. She's going to look how you treat your husband. And if you're disrespectful and, and ornery and cranky with your husband, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. You do it by example. They're also to love their children. What is the women's what is the woman's sphere of influence? The home. The husband, the children, the home. That's her sphere of influence. Now why is that? Why is that? More foundational. Why is that? That's the way God designed it. Generally, what do women want? They want security. They want a home and they want security. Emotional security, financial security. Most women don't want to go out and fight in the, you know, the work world. Most of them don't want to do that. That's the way God's wired them. They find their greatest joy in their kids and their home and making a home. You know, if 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 you if I if I was the only one living in my house, you'd come in. You know, I'd have a nice clean house, but I wouldn't have pictures on the wall. I wouldn't have plants. You know. That's not utilitarian, right? The more, you need a TV, you need a big TV, good sound, but you don't need plants on, you know, that, you don't need plants. You've got to water the dog on things, right? You don't need pictures on the wall. You don't need, you know, think about it. You know, a woman, that's her sphere of, of influence. You know, that's, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny, the other day Donna was, she said, hey, I'm sick and tired of our room looking the same way. Well, it's only been that way for 
a couple of months. She wants to change the furniture around every couple of months just to make it look different. Now, you, you know, I, if I lived there, you could, you know, bolt the furniture to the floor and it'd be good for 20 years. You know, I don't need to move the furniture, right? But no, you got to move it around. You gotta... Paul is telling them to love their husbands, to love their children. Teach younger women that. Be their example. Show them what it's like to love their family. And then um, to be discreet. What's it mean to be discreet? Flirty. Flirty. Don't be flirty. Be discreet. Um, I, I think I think probably the best idea here is well, discreet means pure. All right. To be pure morally. Now here's here's the thing, you know what's if you're an older woman discipling a younger woman, what would you tell her about? About TV. Don't watch, watch TV. Don't watch Benny. Yeah, Benny Hinn. <laughs> don't watch General Hospital. Don't watch All My Children. Don't watch As the World Turns or whatever it is now. You got Jerry. You know. I'll tell you, when I was sick, when I was sick at home, it was enlightening to be sick at home once in a while, and. Yeah, it's you know you're sick in bed and you don't feel like doing it. You got that little clicker. If I didn't have a clicker, I wouldn't have the TV on. But you're going, you know, you're cycling through the 90 channels, or whatever, and there ain't nothing on worth watching, you know. Jerry Springer, and then you got Judge Wapner, whatever, whoever the next one is now, and then you've got As the World Turns, All My Children, and you know, and it's like no wonder women's brains are melted today. There's nothing. They're they're eating this drivel. No wonder they don't know what's going on. Because if you look at those shows, every, you know, those guys look a lot better than their husbands. And that woman can have an affair with a couple of guys and she's happy. Ooh, maybe I could do that, you know. I got some, especially when I look up and just turn over in bed in the morning and see this guy with his beard. Now, good night, you know. That guy looks better than he does. Maybe, maybe there's something to it. It's the world. And you're to teach the younger woman to watch what they watch, to love their children, to love their husbands, to be chaste. Chaste. Um, keeping a good, here's the point, keeping a good home. And I, I think that's important. I, I think that's important. With rare exceptions, men, do you want to go home to a home that's chaotic? No. A woman should, does that mean this woman's house is spick and span? No, that's not what that Yeah, it doesn't work that way, right? Unless she's married to an obsessive. Compulsive or something like that. But, it, but, but when you walk into, here, here's the question. If you're an older woman teaching a younger woman, when she walks into her home, what should she see? Order. Order. Again, we're not talking about, you know, why well, I can drop something on the floor and pick it up and eat it. Kind of clean. That's an obsessive. But basically, you've got a ordered, clean home. You don't have junk piled in the corners. 
You don't have five days worth of dishes in the dish dishes. You don't have a week's worth of laundering. You don't have the kids' baby diapers, you know, in the pail and overflowing. You know, and I say that because I've known homes that are like that. All right. It's ordered. It, he's not talking about spotless. He's saying there's an order to your home that when that younger woman comes in, she sees that there's order and, and everything's not chaotic. Now, again, when you have three or four little kids running around, you can't have a perfectly clean house. But things can still be in order, can't they? You can still have order. You can still have some sense of clean, cleanliness. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. She used to be a good housewife. Keep, keep the house basically clean. And why is that? Well, it's good discipline. It's a good testimony. And if she loves her husband, when he comes home, he doesn't need a house that looks like a cyclone hit it. It's good discipline. It's good homemaking. Be a Martha Stewart kind of housewife, you know. Well, don't, I mean, you might want to go to the Hooskow, you know. But the whole point is, and there are, there are homes that you're in where, you know, there, there's a sense that, you know, they've taken care of it, you know. We're a steward of what God has given us. If you walked into Christ's home, if he had a home, if you walked in his home, would you see uh, half-eaten food laying all over the place? Would you see, you know, his robes thrown in the corner? Would you see chaos all over the place? No, you wouldn't do that. And, and you know, you say, well, boy, that's being kind of legalistic, isn't it? That's being kind of, you know, what right do you have to tell somebody how to live? Well, think about it. If you walk into an undisciplined person's home that's totally chaotic, what's that saying about their life? And what is that saying about their spiritual life? There's, there's no difference, folks. If you walk into a home and there's trash thrown everywhere, those people are not disciplined. And most likely they're not spiritually disciplined as well. Paul calls for us to be spiritually disciplined. And women, since that is their sphere of influence, they're to keep the home. And it's just... Same thing with the men, you know, mow the lawn, pick up the trash. You know, your house should not look like it. You say, well, you know, that's, I have more godly things to do. I need to read my Bible instead of mow the lawn. Mowing your lawn is part of being a Christian. What did God, what was Adam supposed to do in the garden? And what is implied by him taking care of it? Weeding it, pruning it. We didn't have a lawnmower back then. But they didn't care. It was supposed to be a pleasant place. All right? He had a job to do to make it look good. That's part of being a Christian is being disciplined and exhibiting that discipline in your life, in your finances, in the way you keep your home. You know, the friend of mine I use as an illustration many times I told you my brother needed to go visit him, didn't know where he lived. Dad said he's on Spruce Street somewhere. My brother went, drove up Spruce Street, drove back down it, pulled into the guy's driveway. How'd he find it? He looked at the most torn up, dilapidated, messiest, garbage-filled yard on the street, and that's where he lived. 
and he's witnessing to his neighbors while he's doing it. There's something wrong with this, okay? Be chaste, keepers at home, um, good homemakers, obedient to their own husbands. Oh, why did why he put that in there? What's the idea of being obedient there? What does that mean? Working together. Working together. It, it's, it, it's not, you know, that he's the master of the house and the slave cracking, you know, and you're the slave and he's just cracking the whip and all of that. It's that there's an order to your home. And the order is the man is the head of the home, the woman is the help meet, and they work together. Because, you know, we have, we have churches full of women today that treat their husbands like dirt and then wonder why they get divorced or he runs off with the secretary. I mean, I'll tell you how God's wired men, women, God's wired men that if, you're, that if a man is married to a woman that loves him and, and works with him and treats him like the way the Bible treats it, he'd die for her. He'd die for her. And when some other woman comes along, he's not looking. That's the way God's wired us. And Paul is telling Titus to tell the older women to teach the younger women to be obedient to their own husbands, not somebody else's husbands, to their own husbands. And why is that? Why? What's it say here? That the word of God be not blasphemed, dishonored. Think about that. Think about, uh, let, me, let, me, let me put what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that when a home is in chaos, that is dishonoring the word of God. That is bringing dishonor to him. And it's making people speak evil of. When people look at Christians and say, your family life is no better then who's the who's the family on TV? Um, no, the the Osbournes. The Osbournes, Ozzy Osbourne. All right. When your family's no different than Ozzy Osbourne, Christ means nothing. The greatest attraction of the world is when I see a Christian family functioning well. Seventh Heaven is a good show. Look, at, you know, I don't like those chick shows like that, but I hear, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a healthy family, right? For the most, I mean, yeah. you know, and there, there, I think deep down inside everybody, there's a desire to have that kind of home. I th I, you know, that's the way God's created us, wired us. And when, when younger women are running off and running around and blaspheming, the older women are not teaching them how to do that, the Word of God takes a hit. And see, this is one of the things we need to understand. Our actions reflect on Christ. Our actions reflect on our message. And when we live an ungodly, undisciplined, unholy, unrighteous lifestyle, or when we live in sin, or we're no different than the world, 
it, it, it's making God look bad. It's reflecting bad on God. Do you want to make God look bad? So I don't want the word of God to be blasphemed. This is a tall order. This is a tall order. I would hope that every church would have a group of older women that take upon themselves the special ministry of finding and ministering to younger women to help them with the issues of life. When a younger woman has a problem with her kids, she can go to an older woman and say, well, let me tell you about the kids I raised. Let me tell you how I faced that. You know, I remember when my children did that, and this is how I helped and worked with it. They need that. Most, most younger women today, when they have a problem in the family, who do they go to? Well, mother, there's nobody to go to. There's, they, they, they figure out yeah. They don't mess up. Yeah. Or, or they go to the self-help book or they turn on TV and listen to Jerry Springer yeah. help them sort it out. When they should be going to an older woman in the church who's been through that, been down that road, look, I remember when Junior did the same thing and I had to do this. And it'll work out. Women that have gone down the path and have gone through that and have gone through the struggles. Younger women need that. And the only really valid source of them getting that is not older men, but older women. Because they can relate, because there's no danger of the immorality leaking in. Then he says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Who's the young men? Well, they're the husbands of the young women, right? Or the potential husbands of the young women, all right? So they're the same age bracket as the younger women. Who's the younger women? They're the ones with children at home. Who's the younger men? They're the ones of that age, all right? He said, I want you to teach, I want you to exhort them something, to do some things, to be sober-minded. What's sober-minded? Well, it's the same thing back in the first... Clear-headed. What's the danger of a young man? It's fun talking to some people at work, you know, younger guys. I used to be a younger guy, now I'm an older guy. I'm talking to younger guys, say, and I think to myself, how can you be so stupid? You know, how can you be so stupid? Well, why is that? Because he's not sober-minded. He's not there yet. Paul is encouraging, he wants, I want you to exhort the younger men to be sober-minded, to be seriously thinking about things, to be sensible. Sometimes younger men are not very sensible. Common sense. Well, what are some ways, let me, let's, let's stop and think about this a minute here. What are some practical ways Practical things we could do in our churches today along this line. Mentor. Mentoring. Particularly what? In what? Mentoring for what? Think practicality. What, what do younger men need to know that they don't? Well, everything, but... Okay. Good husbands and fathers. Yeah. That's part of it. 
unselfish. Unselfish. Think of unmarried men in this self-control. I think one of the one one thing here. Immorality is a minefield for younger men. It's a minefield, and it's pumped at you. You don't have to jump in the sewer. The sewer's pumped at you in a high-pressure hose. All right? You, they, young men today desperately need help in this area to know how to stay away from temptation. The internet is a, is a is a is a damning thing. If you're a younger man and you don't younger man and you don't have self control, it's a minefield. You can get sucked into that, and before you know it, you're way down a path that you don't want to be on. Um, what's another major area? In what? Spiritual life. Their self-discipline. What? Uh, what's one of the number one reasons for divorce? That's a woman speaking. Lack of communication. Money. 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 I think money is number one. It's number one or number two. Money is number one or number two. What should, you, what should we as older men be teaching younger men? How to control their money. Because most of them, you know, they immediately get a job in, you know, stereo, car, you know, and they dig themselves in a hole that they never get out. And they're in debt up to the day they, they're planted in a coffin. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. I love, I still love that I'm Stanley Johnson, you know, and, you know, this is my home. Do you like it? This is my car. It's new. You know, how do I do that? I'll have to debt my eyeballs, you know. And we have, we have a society today where men are up to their debt. When, when the average couple gets married, they're in debt. The you know how much debt my wife and I had when we got married? You know how much debt I had when I got married? $2,900. That's all I owed in the world. And that was for my college. But nowadays, college. That's all I own in the world. Um, and Donna and I made a habit. We made a, we made a pact. We made a commitment. When we use credit cards, they, pay, they get paid off. When that bill comes in, it gets paid. And in 24 years of marriage, we've never been late on a payment on anything. Except one time I forgot to mail the check. I made the check out, I put the stamp on it, I put it on my briefcase, and I forgot to mail it. But other than that, we've not been late. We've disciplined ourselves financially, and because of that, we have a freedom today that I know other people my age will never have. Because they started down a path of not being disciplined. Paul is not zeroing in on any specific thing in these passages. passages. He's given generalities. And what you can do is you can take what he's saying and you can relate it today. You know, one of the things that churches should be teaching younger people is how to manage their money. And I'll tell you what, it's awful easy to buy that car, 
but those car payments get old early. Doesn't take long for that to get old. And there are people today that are, I, I remember Larry Burkett saying, the average American family is one paycheck away from bankruptcy. Teach them to save money. A little bit. Don and I have made a habit in our life to always spend less than we make. Always save a little bit. Put something away. Yeah, and right now, you know, that's given us a freedom right now that, you know, I can, I can go out and eat a steak dinner and not worry about, you know, not paying it off or whatever, you know, because we've disciplined ourselves. I, I know young people right now, I, I have one visit me a lot of times, he's a financial disaster. It's discipline. Nobody taught him. Nobody taught him how to avoid those minefields. And we need to teach younger people, younger men especially, because in those days, they were the ones earning money. Now today it's both, it's younger men and women. Don't get yourself in debt. My neighbor used to do mortgage refinancing, and she said she, it was common to have families be $60,000 in credit cards. 60000 60, bucks at 18% interest. You'd never pay it off. Um, I, we're, the statistics are that if you, what credit card companies do is they try to get you $800 in debt because they know if they give you $800 in debt, chances are you'll never pay that debt off. It's $800. Bucks. I, was, I was shocked when I heard that, but it's $800. Every day when I go home, I have something in my mail of those credit card checks that I could, you know, just sign here and you get. I got a shredder, you know. I could heat my house with the stuff. I had a paper burning oil. You know, I could just heat my house every day, comb, throw the mail in, and stay warm for the next day, you know, because I get, I get this stuff all of the time. Access your $32,000 credit limit. Just sign here. Whoa. And you know what? People do that, and they're like Stanley. They're up to their eyeballs in debt. And where's the money go? Well, I just goes. There are some very, I think there's some very practical things you can think of as you read down through this passage. There are very practical things that people need to learn, learn today. Now, if you're going to teach somebody to be financially responsible, what do you need to be? You need to be financially responsible. And that's the, bit, that's the key running through here. The older men and older women are to be examples. Leadership in the Bible is always by character. It's always by example. Don't tell somebody to do something you're not doing yourself because they're not going to get it. And he says, I want you to show, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. So what's implied in that? Where's Timothy, where does Titus fall in this thing? And what, what group is he in? Probably the younger. the younger men group. He's not yet the older man stage. He's in the younger man group. And he says, I want you to be a pattern of good works. <clears throat> Again, leadership in the Bible is character, character, character. 
It's what you are. It's not your abilities. It's not your brains. It's not your intellect. It's what you are. And he's telling Titus, I want you to be an example of the believers. A pattern. I want, you, I want somebody to say, well, what, well, how am I supposed to live? Well, look at Titus. He'll show you how it's to be done. How am I to deal with this situation? Well, what would Titus do? How did Titus handle that? See, we have this, we have this, pie, this, this, I think, false, pious notion. Don't do as I do, do as I say. All right, now that's bad theology. Okay? Because Paul said, be followers together with me as I am with Christ. Paul is saying, I'm trying to follow Christ so hard that I want, if you can't figure out how to follow Christ, check me out, look how I'm doing it, and follow me. That's not spiritual arrogance. That's not spiritual pride or pompous. Being pompous. That's just Paul saying, You can be, an, I want to be an example so that you can pattern your life after me. And he's telling Titus, Be an example so people can look at you and pattern their behavior and their attitudes and life and decisions after you. Be an example. And what's to be an example in? In doctrine. What's doctrine? is what you know. So there's no premium. Here's the, here's the idea, folks. There's no premium in the Bible on spiritual ignorance. Now, what do you have in the church today? Ignorant people. Ignorant people. Timothy is to be a pattern of someone who knows what he is to believe and believes it. He studies. He learns. We have this idea today that, oh, doctrine's boring, it's dry, it's dull. Just tell me what I'm to do. Well, how do you know what to do if you don't know what you're to do, right? Doctrine forms the basis of your behaviors. And I also want you to show integrity. What's integrity? What is integrity? Specifically what? So, um, remember this definition. You are in public what you are in private. Yeah. Or actually you are in private what you are in public, vice versa. There's no difference. There's not two of you walking around. All right? Included in integrity is honesty, trustworthiness. If you say you're going to be somewhere, be there. If you say you're going to do it, do it. If you take a loan out, pay it back. It's amazing how many Christians don't pay their bills on time. Well, if God wants me to pay my bills on time, he'd give me the money. I heard that one. <laughs> well, if God wanted me to pay my bills on time, he'd give me the money. And if you're so concerned about it, why don't you pay my bill for me? Well, you know, I, I didn't, you know, you want to slap that person around a little bit, you know, and do some things, you know. The whole point is, be a person of integrity. A Christian should be a model of integrity. They should look at you and say, that person is a person of their word. They are dependable. They are reliable. When they say something, they do it. When they say they'll be there, they're there. They, they have integrity. And he says, I also want you to show reverence and incorruptibility. 
What's incorruptibility? What do you think he means by that? Don't be corruptible. What's the opposite of incorruptibility? Corruptibility. You can be twisted. You can, you can be talked into doing the wrong thing. Don't be incorruptible. Now, how are you incorruptible? How, how do you get there? How can you get to be incorruptible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you look at the construct here, it says in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility. Some say that the integrity, incorruptibility, and reverence is a talk is is modifying the doctrine. You hold the doctrine in integrity, the teaching. You have reverence about the teaching and an incorruptibility about the teaching. Now those are also character traits, but, pro but it may be in this context, it's better to understand in terms of the doctrine, the, the teaching of Scripture that you know, you should hold it in integrity. In other words, what does it mean to... Here, here's, here, let's think about this a minute. What does it mean to have integrity about the Scripture? Think of the teaching. Think of the doctrine in the Word of God. What does it mean to have integrity about it? No double standard, right? It's not, it means this for you and this for me. Now, what was the Pharisees' problem? They had a double standard. We're not to have a double standard. If it means this, it means this, and it means it for everybody. How about um, reverence? Well, that's easy. To be reverent about the truth. It's, it's serious. It's to be revered and to be honored and lifted up and protected. And incorruptibility means you don't twist it. Um, it's amazing how people... You ever notice how people's theology changes when they want to do something that's wrong? <laughs> Anybody ever remember the Worldwide Church of God? Yeah. Herbert Armstrong? Well, when he first started out, one of the greatest cardinal sins of anybody in that movement was divorce until he got divorced. And then it wasn't all that bad. See? That's corrupt. That's twisting the Word of God. That's making it mean something. Is. And we're so good at that, right? Because we can... We, we could snooker ourselves into thinking we're better than, than we are. Hold the doctrine in high esteem. And then it says, um, sound speech that can't be condemned. Hygienic speech. Healthy speech that can't be condemned. That one who's an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say about you. Sound speech, being, speaking the word of God and speaking the truth soundly without, uh, without falling into the vain janglings, without falling into the endless genealogies. And if you do that, 
the one who opposes you is what? He's ashamed because he can't find anything evil to say about you. He can't find any flaw in your life. What does the world just love to do to discount the message of Christ? Well, I remember 28 years ago, you, you know, if they could find one itsy bitsy, itty teensy weeny thing that you've done wrong, they feel like can discount the entire message. It's frustrating to hear some of the pundits on TV, you know. It's not whether something's right or wrong, that's, that's irrelevant. You notice that? It's irrelevant whether something is right or wrong. For example, it's irrelevant that Arnold could do a better job than Gray Davis. That's, that was irrelevant to them. What was relevant? Well, Arnold groped somebody at, you know, when he was a young kid. And that, that you know, that, that's... See, what it would do, they latch on to one look. The truth is irrelevant. It all goes back to character. So as a Christian, what do we need to be worried about with our character? Have one that they can't find anything. Now, is anybody really to that level? No, but you strive towards it, don't you? You strive towards it. Because what Paul is trying to get at to Titus here says, Titus, if you show any weakness or any deficiency in this area, people are going to latch on to that and they're going to use that to discredit everything you say. You may be right, but they're going to discredit it because of some flaw. We need to strive to be people that can't be discredited. doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but there's, there's a striving towards it. Having nothing evil to say about you, nothing bad. They, they can't find any glaring issue. There's not a lot of Christians that fall into that, is there? Now, I think one of the keys here is that goes back to verse 5, the end of verse 5, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Why is it that we're to act this way so that people can't speak evil of the word of God? They can't talk evil of it. And he said, I want you to exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. We can relate this today. Employees, obey your employers. Employees, be a good employee. Be the best employee you can. Does that mean you're the perfect employee? No, because all of us have bad hair days. We all do those things once in a while. They're just boneheaded. We all make mistakes. But when, when review time comes around at your job, how should you rate? Towards the top. Now, how, how do most people today form their work ethic and attitude? What do they use to form that? How do they do it at the Ford plant? The standards. Most guys, most guys on the line, how do they determine what their work ethic and their effort level is going to be? You have a certain, yeah, but what do they usually do? Why? Why am I going to work my hind in off 
when that lazy bum over there takes Mondays and Fridays off and he gets paid the same amount of money I do. I'm not going to work hard. I'm going to take it easy like he does. That's not all. Not all of them. Not all of them. I'm not saying all of them. I'm, I'm not lumping you in with them, all right? But, but most people in the world determine their level of energy given to their job based on what other people are doing around them. All right? That's just a general truism. And it's the rare person that says, I don't care what other people are doing around me. I'm going to do my best. You have, you have that in every company. You have certain percentages that do as least as possible and they can get away with it. Yeah. And, and, and you Paul, have other people that take pride, pride in their work. They do a good job every day. And what Paul... And what Paul is telling Titus here is I want you to exhort the bond servants to do that. Don't look around at the people around you and determine what you're going to give on the basis of what they're giving. You do a good job as unto the Lord. And don't worry about what other people are doing. Don't worry about their output as opposed to your output. You be the best employee you can be. Yeah. See, I have a constructive parallel to them, but I do my tax work. I've got a lot of people that think, well, I don't know the government anything, so if I want to cheat a little bit, I want to, you know, they come up with that. And they feel it's justified, you know? Yeah. To, to cheat on your taxes. We justify a lot of things. So I tell uh, them I used to work for the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get nervous. <laughs> and then he got saved. All right. That's <laughs> so I got saved. Thank goodness uh -huh. I got it. Uh, the only good place for a tax man is up the tree like Zacchaeus. Um, the, whole, the whole point is, you know, you can follow this theme throughout Paul's writings where he's talking to the bond servants. Peter uses this. You, you see it again and again and again in the New Testament. Employees, be good employees to your masters. Why is that? So the word of God be not blasphemed. If you're a bad employee and you're not giving your due, you're making God look bad. You're a representative of Christ. To, do, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. What does it mean to be not answering back? What do you think he means there? Not arguing. Not arguing respectful. Right? He's not saying don't question your boss. Don't. He's not saying that. He's saying be respectful. Don't. Sass your boss. Don't don't badmouth them. Not pilfering. Whew. How you like that one? Yeah, not pilfering. I love that song by Johnny Cash. Where where he? What's that one song he? One piece at a time. One piece at a time. <laughs> You know, I remember that. I think that one piece at a time, you know. He built a car one piece at a time. You know, he started in one year and it took him a few years and he finally got all the pieces for his car and it had a head beam from one year and a tail light from another and, <laughs> you know, um, he said the, the title was, you know, 10 pages long, you know. And, but but w people today steal. How do you steal? Well, you take stuff. Not giving them that right number of hours. Take things that they don't think they're stealing, but they are. Yeah. When you take pictures of 
Penso para poder Now, so, some companies allow you to do that. Yeah. Now, for example, you know, my company would allow me to do that within reason. Yeah. You know, when I write your tests are usually on mowing paper. All right. Um, yeah. Um, it's okay if they allow you to do that. But if they, they allow you to do that. But if they didn't allow you to do that, then you shouldn't do that. You know, don't pilfer from your employer, but showing good fidelity. The idea of fidelity there is honesty, uprightness. Why? That they may <coughs> adorn. What does it mean to adorn something? Make it attractive. Make it attractive. You know, if most Christians were to let on at work that they were Christians, what would people think of Christ? That's what Paul is encouraging Titus here. Listen, I want you to encourage those employees to be good employees so that the Word of God could be adorned. Be, look good. Make it attractive. For and why? 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 Why make it attractive? And in fact, why do any of this? Why tell the older guys to do this? The younger, older women, the younger men, the younger women. Why do you tell the employees to be good employees? Why do you do all that? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. One of the great verses in the New Testament, the grace of God, has appeared to all men. How's it appeared to all men? How's God's grace appeared to all men? And in the person of Christ. Teaching us. What's the. Now, now you got to understand what he's saying here. What, when you think of grace, what do you think of? What, 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 is, what is in distinction to grace? What is the opposite of grace? Paul says if it's by grace, then it is no more of works. If it's by works, it's no more of grace. All right. So grace and works are opposite. They are, there's no mixture between them. Now notice what he says, the grace of God to bring salvation has appeared to all men. And I think that's just a very broad statement referring to the entire redemptive plan, including Christ, including the message, everything. The grace of God has appeared to all men. And what does that grace teach us? Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Folks, there is no tension between grace and works. In the sense that, what does grace produce? Good works. Good works. Don't let anybody snooker you into thinking that somehow you can have grace without a change of life. You can be a Christian and have no difference. You can experience the grace of God and live like the devil. It doesn't work. What does the grace of God that appeared to all men teach you? To deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, 
to not go that way. God's grace teaches you to be godly. That's what he's saying. You're to live soberly. What's soberly? Well, that's clear-headed. That's that word again. Righteously, act like God. Be right and godly. And you're to do that by denying worldly desires. And if the grace of God produces godly people, it should. The grace that saves you transforms you. And we're not to only live righteously and godly, but what are we to look for? We're looking for the blessed hope. What's that? Our salvation, all that is ours, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Who are we looking for? God. Now, here's, here's, you see something really interesting here. Grace produces good works, right? And why do you do good works? Because of grace and also because of what? Because someday there's going to be a grand reckoning when God comes back. Good works have two motivations here. One's a past motivation. The past motivation is the grace of God that has appeared. The future motivation is He's coming back. And when He comes back, what do you want to be able to do? Not be ashamed. It teaches you to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and look for that blessed hope. And here's the question. Can you truly look for the return of Christ while you're living in sin? I mean, as a little kid, you know, when you're a terror and you're doing something bad in the house, did you want mom and dad to show up at that moment? No. no wait, till, wait till I can get rid of the evidence. That's the same way. If you have a life of sin, the last thing you want is God showing up. You're not ready. He's saying, look, this, motiv this should motivate you to live godly because you know that there's a glorious appearing that's coming and look what it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. You see how this is all wrapped up? It's a package deal. God's grace appears, which teaches us to live godly. We live godly because we know there's a future coming of Christ. And why did Christ come the first time? To redeem us from what? Sin. God did not come to let you live your life any way you want. It doesn't matter. Go sin. No. He died to redeem us from every evil work. And purify for himself his own special, peculiar, special people. Zealous for good works. You see how it's all wrapped up? See how it's all wrapped up? The grace of God has appeared. In what manner has the grace of God appeared? Well, it's appeared in the Redeemer who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every evil work. Almost two layers here. The whole idea, if you really get these few sentences here, the whole concept here is God died in the person of Christ, Christ died to redeem you from sin. 
And there's coming a day when you stand before him, why do you want to sin? Why do you want to do something he died to eliminate? And that's why it's so nonsensical for a Christian to say, well, you know, I've been forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven, so if I sin, eh, it doesn't matter. Well, I question if they were really a Christian, if that's their attitude. What is Christ died? He died to redeem us. You got to get on. He died to redeem us. And to present for himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works, who want to do what is right. And how is Titus to speak these things? Well, verse 15, one of the key words, key verses, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone ignore you. Now, how are you to teach the word of God? With authority. You don't say, well, you know, my humble opinion for all it's worth, you know, this way I think. No, you teach with authority. How did Christ teach the people? He didn't make suggestions. He gave them commandments. He taught with authority. Now, where does that authority come from? It comes from the Word of God. It's not your authority. It's the authority of the Word of God. You say, thus says the Lord. And if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. That's not your worry. We have people today that don't speak. The average pastor, in most American pulpits, do the pastors speak with authority? No, they're scared to death. Why? Well, you know, we have a pluralistic society. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, and I'm just going to give you a, my little ditty on what I think maybe you might think about, but certainly your way is as good as my way. No, don't. Paul's telling Titus, listen, when you teach these things, you do it with authority. Don't be a mamby-pamby preacher. Don't, don't stand up and waffle. Speak authoritatively. And look at look what it says. Speak these things. What does it mean to speak these things? Well, that's the teaching part. What's the exhorting? It means to encourage people. To, that's a little stronger. And rebuking, what's that? Correcting. Correcting. And do it with all authority. And don't let anybody ignore you. Don't let anyone, I think the idea there, now are there some people that are going to ignore you? Sure. Yeah, but what's he trying, what do you think he's trying to get Titus to do here? Don't worry about whether they're going to ignore you or not. And don't tone down what you say because if you don't tone it down, they may not ignore you. Or if you say the truth, they may ignore it. Don't worry about whether, folks, we got to get out of this idea of trying to, trying to, to formulate a message that people will accept. Now, you don't need to be abrasive and obnoxious about it, but look, you speak the truth, and if they accept it, they accept it. If they don't, they don't. That's not your problem. It's not your fault. A good example of that is which prophet in the Old Testament? Jamie, what prophet in the Old Testament? Jeremiah. See? See, he's... I got to get, get gold star sheet, you know, and give these gold stars. Jeremiah. What did, what, remember when God showed up to Jeremiah? What did he tell Jeremiah? How do you commission them? I want you to go and, 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 and whether these people listen or not. And what did he tell Jeremiah they wouldn't do? He said, they're, by, oh, by the way, Jeremiah, they're not going to listen to you. They're stiff-necked and rebellious. They're not going to listen to you. 
but you speak it anyways. That was the role of Ezekiel, right? God commissioned Ezekiel to go to a rebellious house, stiff-necked people. And he says, I want you to speak to them whether they listen or not. And by the oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to what you say. How'd you like that? How'd you like God to show up and say, I want you to preach the word, but nobody's going to listen to you. Don't let them despise you. Don't let them disregard you. Don't tone it down to make it acceptable. Just preach it with truth. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.